welcome to episode 28 of Q&A Quest. Um, I, I can't make a joke about the number. There's no good ones. Yeah, I feel like I had something funny to say and I've lost it. Uh, I'm your host. Just uh, like your voice. Yes, I'm your host, Mike Apps, a.k.a. Wheels, and with me as always... David Mavoni, Fanboy Master, whatever you prefer. And we have a guest this week. An extra special guest. Yes. Hashtag humble brag. <laughs> Hashtag unsettle humble brag. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm Adam Reed from Tier, otherwise known as Paws, and I um I don't know if I really have a title on the site. Co owner? Co owner is a pretty good title. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Co owner already means that you can pull rank on us at any point. <laughs> Girl like, on the you... po- girl on the podcast. No, I can't do that anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll just go with Connor. Connor is good. Again, like mm. I think you can actually legally force us to dance for your amusement. So like, Ooh. <laughs> uh, that's a pretty good title to have. Well, to have. and you know, on Skype you can now do do video conference calls. Oh no, gross. Oh, no, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> we- Feels already sick enough. He'll die. <laughs> this, is, this is starting to become a bad tail skit. Kind of, but that's probably most of our interactions. Yeah, so. I think that's become a hallmark of our podcasts. Really, that's how you can tell it's a proper RP gamer. Proper RP gamer podcast seal of approval has ridiculous skit. RP <laughs> RP gamer podcasts. It's just like a tail skit. <laughs> I think one of the first like podcasts I ever did with this site involved like starting. It was like a backtrack that had like a tails dating skit or something. It was the strangest yes, thing I've ever all seen. Of in my life. Skits <laughs> and they're wonderful. It's like my favorite that podcast. It was surreal taking part in that, not knowing what I was in for. <laughs> yeah, I remember my first time doing one of those, and it was like, what? Because I think those other podcasts. Because <laughs> I, I, I think I guest starred on Backtrack before I actually started listening to it, so I had no idea what I was in for. <laughs> oh, yes, you dove into the deep end. Yeah. <sighs> uh. <laughs> so what are we diving into this week? Oh, we have some uh, good stuff this week, but we're going to save the good stuff for later on because... Um, we're really going to call that good. <laughs> so we have I'm the... Kidding. We have the likely f- flame war starting question in the middle of the episode, so you're going to have to listen to all the other stuff to get to that. Uh, but let's start with something fun, and th- this one is from Budai, who... Uh, Thank you, Budai. You've uh, given us tons of questions lately, so we really appreciate that. Uh, and this is, remember the Final Fantasy XII spinoff that was being developed by a European company? I believe that was Grin. Yeah, it was Grin. Developers of Wanted, Weapons of Fate, Bionic Commando 2009, and the Terminator Salvation game. Well, they did make the remake of the original Bionic Arms as well, didn't they? Yeah, and you will notice that Bionic Commando Rearm took a slight dip in quality when it stopped having levels to base itself off of. I just called that Bionic... Did I just call that Bionic Arms? You said Bionic Arm. Oh my god. (laughs) (sighs) 
yeah, uh, and he says that was sort of an odd situation. So it turns out that that's actually not an odd situation at all. Mm. Um, There are a lot of developers that work out of Europe that work with both North American and Japanese companies, and you just don't know that the games are being developed there. So, for example, um, Silent Hill, famously associated with Konami. But the last four games were developed by European companies and overseen not by Konami Japan, but Konami USA. Yeah, I actually uh, talked to one of the producers on those. He mentioned some of the issues that they ran into when they started like changing which European companies they outsourced to. Right, and so um, I know one of the games was done in the Czech Republic and then I think one of them was done in the Ukraine and then I'm a little iffy on the other ones. But I mean... Uh, I'm good friends with Tom Hewlett, who is the producer of the Silent Hill series for quite a number of years. And so every once in a while, I'd be chatting with him and he'd be like, well, off to Europe again. And I'm like, oh, well, hey, enjoy the time zone difference. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's the one that I've met uh, once or twice. Definitely not that well. But uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I think Downpour was Czech Republic. And I know that like Shattered Memories and Origins or both Climax in the UK. Yep. Uh, and I think one of those may have changed hands prior to the announcement. So I think that there may have been like a pre-dev yeah, team before they handed it off to somebody else, to Climax, I believe it was. Yeah. yeah. Development can get sticky. So here's the interesting one, is many moons ago, um, Marvelous commissioned a Harvest Moon mobile game Hmm. and then canceled it and then commissioned a second Harvest Moon game and used all of the Harvest Moon name on it. They didn't use Bokujo Monogatari, the the Japanese names for it. Um, And didn't tell Natsume, who owns the trademark for Harvest Moon, that they were doing that. And in fact, many, many moons later, we actually found out because the company that was developing that game put out like this litany of like games that um, like failed or never went through or they had started to develop and then the company that had asked them to develop it had backed out. And so they had like this huge Bible of like 15 or 20 cell phone games. And I was just kind of browsing the Silicon era looking at like, hey, what's the story of today? It was like canceled Harvest Moon mobile game. What on earth is going on here? <laughs> yeah, and so like, it's, it's sort of interesting to see how many games actually get developed in Europe, and just they don't get any credit for it, which kind of makes me sad. Yeah, it also just sort of reminds you how often, like, like you don't know about something happening just because, like, it gets killed before they ever even talk about it. I, oh, yeah. There are lots of I games mean, uh, that get developed and never see the light of day. There are games that get localized that never end up coming out in any outside of Japan. It's crazy. Really? Like a full finished yeah. Q&A localization? Yep. Wow. Yeah. Something just goes wrong with like the market or like possibly some sort um, of rights issue and then... There was a... <laughs> okay, so... It's actually related to the game we're talking about today, I think. So there was uh, Grand Kingdom, but there was a game that came before this. Ah, yeah. Oh, Grand Knight's History. Yeah, Yeah. and the localization was actually completed. 
But the developer, for whatever reason, wouldn't insert it back into the game. And so I don't know if it was a time thing, if it was a money thing. Um, But the localization was completed. It just never saw the light of day. I remember the weird, I remember the twisted saga of Grand Knight's history where, like, one company had it, and then I want to say, like, they dropped it, and then someone else, like, picked it up, and then they had to drop it. I think Ignition had it. And then Ignition kind of went up in a spectacular ball. (laughs) Names. Everything that happened at it's, Ignition was so weird. <laughs> it's complicated because Ignition was bought by like um, an Indian company that was like divided between movies and television, and then this game studio in Texas. And eventually, they just they shuttered the game um, division and they shuttered like their TV division, and now they just do Bollywood movies. It's weird. Weird. It's weird. Uh, yeah. Uh, I remember Grand Knight's history having like that weird tortured it will it or won't it actually come out situation. But that was made by like it was made by someone. I wanna like wasn't it uh Vanillaware uh, yeah. in some capacity? I believe so. So people were I, I could see like <coughs> having issues who's coming to terms on how much it was worth their money to make as a PS to actually go through all of the localization heartache in terms of like actually manufacturing and inserting given that it was like a PSP game that would have been coming out in summer of 2012 wasn't the issue they were working on that uh, Atlas game whose name is escaping me at the time Dragon's Crown? Yes, Dragon's Crown that's it. Yeah, like they would have probably needed some decent compensation to make it worth delaying Dragon's Crown in order to insert that localization just as a guess, but there's no real way of knowing. And I think that's something that is kind of one of those things that it's very, it's not a secret in the video game industry, but I still think that it's not well understood by video game aficionados that companies that localize games don't insert translations into the games. There are exceptions, but most of the time, Japanese developers don't like anybody messing with their source code. And a lot of times they won't give it up. And so you actually start to run into problems when 15 years down the line, the publisher wants to re-release something as a virtual console game, and the original developer doesn't have the source code anymore. (laughs) There are games that have literally been lost. I mean, look at the original Baldur's Gate. Like... the a bunch of the original art assets were lost because they were kept in some guy's basement and it flooded. Oh, oh no. And I mean, that's not an unusual situation. You would think it is, but it's totally not. I mean, it was I mean, the problem that um, two, uh, two of the working designs games took forever to come out on Virtual Console. Um, Vanguard Bandits, because the original code, um, like, it was Human Brain or something like that, and they went belly up, and no one had the code. Wow. So yeah, it's like, just, how do you work with a situation like that? That knowledge also makes working designs as operation in the late 80s and early 90s even more surreal because they were infamous for actually tampering with the code. Yeah, I wonder if that's why a lot of people think uh, local, localizers actually 
like insert the text because of working designs and there are some <laughs> companies would... i mean it's cool because you read like exceeds localization blogs on their tumblr and it's cool because one of the things that they're very open about is like falcom basically hands them their code and says go crazy and it's one of the way it's one of the cool things about working with falcom no doubt because the pc versions Exceed has someone in-house who works on programming the PC versions. And that's all she does. Yeah, and that's, and that's, and that's why that's we can get It's a rare situation versions. that it's so cool to me seeing that done. Yeah. Most developers are like, you want our code? <laughs> yeah, right. And also those PC versions are really nice. Like yeah. From what I've played in them, they're really great ports. They haven't really run into any issues. So That, 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 that like sort of careless uh, sort of handling of source code once the game is out is what co has caused a lot of like problems in the past like uh, having to rebuild the first Kingdom Hearts essentially from the ground up for the HD collection because it's gone, it's not there anymore yeah. or all those Saturn the games infamous, uh, that's, that, there's so much, so many problems to deal with with the Saturn, but I mean, like, True. I remember hearing oh that the reason gosh. Magic Knight <laughs> Ray Earth had so many problems was that, like, oh, they got source code, uh, like, you know, working designs had to instantly reconstruct parts of the, because they got source code that wasn't final, and that was all they really <laughs> had to work with. Well, and I mean, then you run into the problem where it's even hard to find good discs to rip um, Saturn games from because the copyright uh, protection on a Saturn yeah. game is on the it's outside on the edge. Outer edge. Why? Why would you do that? Uh, Sega. Uh, Sega. Sega. Was, uh, so, and like the Saturn is one of the systems where like you wish there weren't so many good games on it because it's such a pain in every other aspect of its design. Yeah. yeah. I guess, like, the last uh, thing I have, like, source code is gone, there's nothing left. Uh, or not even there's nothing left, but to go back to Silent Hill, I, I remember reading that, like, Silent Hill 2 in the HD collection, like, the, fog, the amount of fog you get in there doesn't match the PS2 version because they got, like, the only source code Konami could provide them with was not of the final build of the game, and they had to guess how much fog was supposed to be there and how, how much was a technical oh, issue. That, that wow. re the, the Silent Hill remakes of the first, what was it, two games or three games? It's two and three. Okay. They were a nightmare. Yeah. Like, and it, I mean, it's it's little things that you don't even think about. Like, um, some of the voice actors' contracts had expired. <laughs> But people so if, still want those old voice acting. Right, so. and so the problem that uh, they ended up running into is it's like, do we take those voices out? Do we have them re-recorded? Do we try to get the original person? Do we get someone new that kind of sounds like them? Like, you're, you're, it's a damned if you do and damned if you don't. And I don't remember what situation they ended up picking, but I know that it was reviled. I know that Silent Hill 2 had entirely re-recorded voice work. I remember people, like, clamoring for the original voice work, and I'd imagine there were issues with contracts for that. But yeah, Silent Hill 2 and that has an entirely re-recorded voice track, and it's, you know, it's with good voice actors. Like, James got replaced with, like, Troy Baker, but, like, fans were disgusted that they could possibly have 
replaced a voice track that until the very moment that it was announced it was going to be replaced was reviled for being terrible. How could anybody be annoyed by Troy Baker? I don't, I don't understand. It's, it's a complicated does, world. It does not does. compute. Yeah, I did some looking into Fortress itself, and, like, that was another one of those things where it's like, this had a short, complicated, and confused dev history, and it's like, it. Pro- I feel like if it came out, it would have inevitably probably disappointed people, because it wouldn't, wouldn't be what you think when you hear Final Fantasy XII action RPG spinoff. Probably. Honestly, yeah. I'm kind of... I'm, I'm going to say something that's a little controversial here. Bring it on! <laughs> I think it would be interesting for, like, Eidos Montreal to take a swing at a Final Fantasy-style game. Totally agree. Oh, I'd adore that. And, I mean, the funny thing is, is it wouldn't be for me because I just don't play western rpgs and i don't think i've played an idos game ever but i think it would be healthy for square enix because i kind of feel like they've been yanked back and forth so much about you can't please everybody and they're trying really hard yeah and i think it's hurting them and i think that if they took a break from it and let someone else handle that and then came back to it they would have I would hope a different perspective. Some renewed bigger. At the very least, it'd be an interesting experiment. Yeah, the problem is like convincing someone to take the team that's currently doing, you know, probably fairly solid work on the new Deus Ex and say, go make Final Fantasy, which will already be kind of bruising some egos that like it would be taken out of, you know. But it'd, it'd be interesting, even just as a spinoff, like, make something with a different pair of eyes, even. Great. I mean, I'm not saying let's hand Final Fantasy 16 to Eidos. I'm saying, uh, don't. Let, what, what if Eidos took a crack at the Final Fantasy universe? What would that game look like? Specifically Montreal, because I really like uh, their output so far. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, I'm biased, because I'm French-Canadian, so. Oh, man. Nice. A great game studios in Montreal. It's terrifying. Yeah. Ubisoft Montreal does good work. Yeah. That seemed like, for at least for a while there, that was sort of like where companies that, like, we want to set up a new big studio in North America were setting it up in Montreal. And it, you know, it certainly turned out well for Well, for Idos, your, your choices are basically Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver. And, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's really it. I mean, there's, there's Bioware in, what, Edmonton? Yeah, they're up in Edmonton. Yeah, but I don't... Hmm. I mean, I know that they struggle to hire because it can be challenging to get people to want to move to... <laughs> Who wants to live in Edmonton? <laughs> I think Bioware has a Montreal branch now, actually. Uh, I think you're right. Didn't, uh, I'm trying to remember what tech they're working on, and I can't remember... Okay, they definitely there definitely is a Bioware Montreal. I don't think they have a released like product that is just theirs yet. Uh, yeah, no, this is just giving me a list of openings. I don't think that I could successfully get a Canadian work visa, even if I wanted to. So, <laughs> uh, 
Well, the interesting thing is the onus isn't upon you. The onus is upon the company to prove that they couldn't hire a Canadian to fill that position. Uh, Even more reason that I couldn't get a work visa. Um, But yeah, apparently they are responsible for new Mass Effect games. Oh, well, that could be interesting. Fascinating. Yeah, capsule games are fascinating. Like the the nature of like even in studio preservation of games is fascinating. I've harped on this before, but Capcom of all companies is surprisingly good about this because when they were announcing like the again like I've used this example before when they were announcing the Resident Evil Zero remaster, they pulled out footage of the N sixty four version of RE Zero that never came out that no one had ever seen before. Like they just <laughs> still had it. Nice. Well, and it's cool because there was a, a shoot. I can't remember what system it was for, but someone found like an incomplete Sega Genesis game on like their arcade board, and like just submitted it uh, on Reddit, I think. And Kotaku ran a story about it, and they eventually found the guy who developed it, and he was <laughs> like, "I'm kind of ashamed to talk about it because it's like not even close to being done." This is just what was done when we. Just gave up on it. Like. Well, no, they were reassigned, and oh, that happens okay. all the time. In fact, um, Wild Guns is a Super Nintendo game that was developed by Natsume Atari, and the guys were given like six months to basically make as good a game as they could, and that was their absolute cutoff date, because in six months they were starting a new project, and they were going to have to dump anything that they did if it wasn't finished. So they made Wild Guns in like six months and put it out, and they're actually remaking it for the PS4 now. Wow. Yeah, they just announced that, which reminds me that that's even more impressive, because Wild Guns are really good. (laughs) Yeah! I'm kind of excited to see uh, all the changes that they're going to be doing because it's like more characters, more weapons, more stages. It's also a game that wasn't really like, there's not many games that are like it. Like it's a shooter with like a weird perspective and it doesn't really scroll forward, but you shoot forward. It's Yeah, it doesn't use a light gun either. It's it's interesting. It's very different than a lot of the other arcade shooter style well, shooters. Well, and there's see. like a dodge mechanic... And, yeah. Um, I don't want to say shielding because that's not the right word for it. But yeah, there the dodge mechanic is really big, and yeah, um, it's one of the first two-player games that had a guy and a girl character that I can think of for the Super Nintendo. I mean, ironically, the other game that I can think of is, um, what is it called? I it's Blue Ninja in Europe. I sh- uh, Shadow of the Ninja. Which is I'm, also I'm thinking, made, I was thinking of Ninja game. Warriors. Yeah, well, yeah, Ninja Warriors is very similar to um, Wild Guns in format. But Wild Guns yeah. is also a game where you as a bounty hunter and you as a girl pissed off because people, because aliens kidnapped your family, go and mess up a bunch of ninja robots. It's a, it's a really good game. Very, very classic in that style. <laughs> Oh man, that's I was really good at that like sort of game at that time. It's kind of a 
like it's tragic what happened to everything about like the weird it, it was weird to me reading about what happened to Natsume of Japan and when they split from Natsume of America and what happened to them afterwards like because for years I just knew of Natsume America and not realizing how long ago they had split from the Japanese like parent uh, company uh, 22 years ago yeah something like that it's really long time ago now there are three Natsumes, and that's even more confusing. Because uh... <laughs> it just needed to be more... more yep. Like, what is going on? Which Natsume do you mean? Uh... Natsume for all! There's a Natsume we for are... everybody. We are all of us Natsume. <laughs> Alright, should we move on to another question? Sure. Alright. Uh... do do this one is from Victor. I've been seeing more formerly mobile RPGs on the 3DS eShop lately, such as Ash by Circle Entertainment, and several Chemco games. Are formerly mobile RPGs being ported at an increased rate to Sony, Microsoft, or PC Systems 2? If not, why not? Pretty sure they so, are. I think like that Dragon Fable or whatever got ported to everything with a screen. <laughs> and I mean... Chemco is not picky. They have put out games on the PSP, on the Wii U, on 3DS, on PC. Um, yeah, I suspect that, v that Vita games are not going to be far behind. Um, it's kind of a bummer, though, because if they don't go through another company to localize their games, their translations are kind of poo. <laughs> uh. Yeah, you you kind of expect that, like they're pretty low budget. Like, Chemco is one of those companies that I'm always shocked has never like never seems to have even really run the risk of going out of business. And I think it's because they generally operate on pretty small budgets. Well, they they have really set timetables for their games. They reuse engines across multiple games, and they have really dedicated workers. Yeah. Like, most of the people that work at Chemco have worked at Chemco for a long time. Hmm. And that's not common. Yeah. It, that must be. There's a lot of churn in the video game industry in Japan, just as much churn as there is in North America. And it's just something that weirdly isn't talked about. But I mean, there are companies that I can think of that it's like, you think EA is bad for breaking people? You have no idea. <laughs> Yeah, you don't. EA doesn't have to live with as much of like this cultural expectation of you stay until your boss has left. <sighs> but yeah, like like Chemco is like one of those. You know, it's one of those situations where that's also one of the things that's probably keeping them in business is just the fact that like they're willing to just put anything anywhere as long as like. It, like they probably designed these with the intent of porting them around to wherever can hit them, like so. And it's it's kind of the thing that frustrates me a little bit about Circle Entertainment too, because they're prolific, but they're also a little lacking on the translation side. Hmm. And I mean, I <laughs> I really <laughs> wanted to work on Adventure Bar Story for the 3DS because I thought it was an awesome game thought it had a ton of potential. I thought the story sounded really cool. And Circle Entertainment ended up picking up the localization for it. And the translation is just off. And it drives me insane. 
That stinks, because that looked like a a fun little idea for a game. Yeah, I heard good things about the fundamental thing. Yeah, I like, mean, the game itself, <laughs> like, the function of function and form of the game are fantastic. But just, the English is just off a little bit. Uh. And it's off in that just a little bit amount where it's like, you don't, I just can't get into a game that does that. I keep getting pulled out of the fantasy of it. And that's why it drives me crazy. That's uh, dis- disappointing. I mean, the one Kimco I played game. Ugh, ugh. The one Kimco game I played was like almost really good, but I don't know. Do you remember? I feel the bad. It, it was the Wii U one. Oh, Alfaria Genesis. Yeah. Yeah. It it's just like it looks nice. The story is actually somewhat interesting, and the combat was boring as all heck. And I just yeah. I the keep and that's the thing it. with chemical games is they are rigidly traditional JRPGs, and we have seen with games like Bravely Default and Bravely Second that you can be a traditional JRPG without being so excruciatingly rigid. And I kind of want the Chemco staff to play those games and learn from them. Yeah. Because none of the Chemco games are bad. They're just not good. No, that's exactly what my impression of it was. It's like, you know, this... And I mean, the Alphadia Genesis translation was pretty darn good. Yeah, it's really good. And, you know... the (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, the stories, it's really interesting. Like, I really wanted to be able to keep playing it. It's just... Well, and the interesting thing is they actually ported um, another game from the Alphadia series to the 3DS and for some bizarre reason just called it Alphadia. Really? That's Even weird. though it's like, it would be like saying Star Wars A New Hope is the third movie in the series. It's like, wait, no, what? <laughs> Not from any perspective. Wait, why would you do that? Listen, this is the best I can do. I don't have an NTT Docomo mobile phone from 2007. <laughs> uh, I feel bad because whenever I think of Chemco, I just think of Batman Dark Tomorrow, which might be the worst game that anyone's ever released, and it's probably not fair to most of their output. Batman Dark Tomorrow, oh god. That's, a, that's an early GameCube and Xbox game. Yeah... That one I remember as being surreal because it had it, there was a PS2 version that was almost done, and then like eleventh hour, Sony said, "No, you can't release can't release that and, uh, until you iron out this, that, and the other thing," and they just canceled it instead. <laughs> well, I guess that uh, makes sense. <laughs> given given the quality of the final product, it was, uh, it was a lucky save. Yeah. Yeah, Kimco. Like they've been they've been around for a dog's age. So. Um. Yeah, I think they made Sega Genesis games. They made they, one of their first games is a 1985 Famicom game called Doughboy. Wow. <laughs> like they are, are they've been around forever, and like that's the that's the reason I'm always like, wow. They yeah, are I was still watching going. um the RPG Limit Break. Uh, marathon over part of this weekend and someone booted up a game and it was like Chemco at the loading screen and I was like, what? <laughs> Turns what? out it was Lagoon. 
It might have been Lagoon. So yeah, I make... expect to say expect to see Chemco games in as many places as they can possibly shove them. Wait, they didn't make Lagoon, did they? They can't. They possibly... made Lagoon, dude. Are you serious? They made La- Lagoon. Oh my god, it blows my mind. They made and Lagoon. Like, yeah, and like on the apparently in the Sharp X sixty eight thousand version, it played like a proper East clone and. Instead of, like, the weird, you have a sword with a three-pixel range, have fun version that we got on the SNES. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't... Um, I'm sorry. Completely thrown me off now. I can't believe they made Lagoon. It's so weird. <laughs> I didn't realize... <laughs> I didn't realize you had history with this wheel. Lagoon? Yeah. I played that back in... I still have my... Co- I have my cartridge... Oh heavens! The, these good memories, bad memories. Uh, I mean, I thought it was. Let's cool, see here. Cool what else the did they make? Superman they for the stuff. Nintendo. Um, the Bugs Bunny Crazy Castle. Those games are crazy because they're all different licenses in Japan, and they're all Bugs Bunny Crazy Castle here. Um, they did crazy Castle. Oh my god! For the Nintendo. Ah. Bugs Bunny Birthday Blowout for the Nintendo. I want to say Snoopy's they did all the Mac Ventures. Sports Spectacular. I want to I say they did all the Mac Ventures for the Nintendo as well. Like, they did Deja Vu and Uninvited and such. Wait, they did Track and Field? Like, the game with the pad? What? <laughs> they might have been responsible for the port, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, Konami did the original game, I'm sure. But it looks like Chemco was associated with this somehow. Interesting. Things learn. Wheels, they did phalanx. What? (laughs) (laughs) So Uh, so what you're telling me is Chemco has been a part of a part of my entire life and I never knew it? They were actually at E three, um, Three, two or three years ago, in like, um, God, it has such a pejorative name. The There's Kenshin a part Hall. of the show floor that's colloquially called Asian Alley because it's a Is bunch it of Chinese uh, and Southeast Asian and Japanese companies that they don't pay for a big booth. Basically, it's all like five feet by five feet booths, and they are desperate to get your attention, and no one in those booths speaks English. Like, the the infamous part of E3 I know about is Kensha Hall, because it's where, like, all of these people it's... exhibiting so Kensha Hall doesn't they'll never exist see anymore. Again. I mean, they uh, use a parking lot now. Yeah, yeah. Kensha, Kensha stopped being a thing after E3 temporar- temporarily moved to Santa Monica and then realized that was a dumb idea and came back to the LA Convention Center. Kensha yeah. never came back after that point. Oh, uh, that's terrible. So I think the last Kensha Hall was, like, 2006. Yeah, so like instead, I always remember that they, one. They kind of shove a bunch of these companies into a corner in, I want to say West Hall. But hey, maybe they can get larger, like Activision and EA aren't bothering anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't. I'm kind of curious who's going to take over EA's booth because EA's booth was like huge and right at the entrance. So basically, you would go into that hall and be blown away by the massive EA booth pulsing lights and being, like, vibrationally 
like decided tense to dance floor. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so yeah, I'm kind of curious what's going to be there instead. Um, the interesting thing is is what they're going to. I'm kind of curious what the fallout for this year from this year to next year will be in terms of E3, because the E3 rule for booth space is use it or lose it. So you yeah. can get your booth space back year after year, and you will have priority on your former booth space. That's why you Sony got, like, and right Nintendo and Activision are always in the same place every year, and EA is always in the same place every year. But, like, Konami... <laughs> I can't remember the game that they had that year, but they had one game, and they had their massive, massive booth. And they had one game that they weren't even letting people play. They were just running videos of it. So they had this massive booth, and they were maybe using two feet by two feet of it. I want to be- believe that that was like the year that they were basically just showing like Otomedius Excellent or something. It might have been. Was it, like, was it just like their <laughs> yearly soccer game or something? It was a Metal Gear game. Oh, okay. Oh. Uh- Oh, it must have been like MGS 4 or 5, whichever. Could have been, yeah. Basically, there was a theater in the booth where you could go and watch a trailer for it, and that was kind of the extent of their booth. <laughs> like, but like, Konami... They, and, and you weren't allowed taking photos of their booth. Pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> and it was funny because they had rented stanchions. You know, like, you line up in between the ropes and the stand mm-hmm. things? And, like, lines are normally big at certain booths at E3 and Konami is normally yeah. one that has a big line so they rent these stanchions and they are crazy expensive like I suggested it one year for Natsume and the girl who designs our booth looked at me like I was completely mental and she was like no you have no idea how expensive those things are and they had them just sitting there not even being <laughs> used because there was no lines at their booth at all that's like yeah, like Konami just slowly sort of pulling out of the idea of making games that anyone at E3 would care about. And like it's been going on for so long, people barely even noticed it had happened. But it kept happening. Uh, I'm trying to think like I could see like, I don't know. It it, do, it is interesting that you pointed that out that they like they lose that booth, like they don't get that back the next year. So it raises the question of like if they're willing to just pull out and say, okay, we don't mind losing this boot space, it raises the question of like how much they care about E3 going forward. And I mean, the only thing that I think that might be their redeeming note is if they're a part of the ESA, they might be able to talk back their slot, but I don't know if they are. Yeah. <sighs> USA has got like a ton of constituent organizations, but I don't know like any individuals that well. I don't know. I could see some like other like relatively big companies like just swooping in since it happens to be open. Like I don't know Ubisoft or something, but hard to say. Oh my God, Phalanx for the Game Boy Advance. The, what? Sorry. I didn't even realize Sorry, that it reported. Me neither. <laughs> At least it's not Kid Clown in whatever the hell, because Kid Clown is just an upsetting name. <laughs> oh man, there was a Bugs Bunny collection. Okay, I need to stop going down this freaking list of can't go games. Spy vs. Spy NES? They made Spy vs. Spy for everything. It was weird. Uh, what? 
Okay, let's let's move on. Okay, I'm oh, sorry. I'm just I'm baffled that I've apparently been playing Chemco games my entire life. I just never internalized it. No. Oh, Chemco is at the front of all of these. Sort of hope was... on Game Boy. Ah! <laughs> I always forget the there hell? was a Shadowgate 64. Oh. Well, you know what? A lot of these games were better than that freaking Wii U game. You can do better, Kemco. Come on. (laughs) Yes. I believe in you. And I do, too. I believe in you. And it's the thing that drives me crazy about games that are neither good nor bad. It's like, oh, if you would change one thing, you could have been good, or at least you could have sucked hard. Yeah. But why did you have to be so mediocre? In being mediocre, you were way less entertaining than if you had just been completely (laughs) terrible. As as far as reviewing goes, I find I have a much easier time finishing a terrible, god-awful game than I do something that's just, like, average. Unless it's Mugen Souls. We don't speak of that anymore. <laughs> we're, we're, I'm trying to move on. It's part of my 10-step program. You need at least 12 steps to get away, man. Move on. <sighs> Souls. You know, Moving if we stay on. on this topic, you're just going to find more chem- games that you didn't realize were made by Chemco and warn them the entire podcast. Well, you know, I can forgive them a lot for that awesome Phalanx box art. I'm just going to be totally honest. That box art is amazing. They did dreadful things with the Batman license, though. I mean, they did Batman Beyond Return of the Joker as well, which is like the worst beat-em-up. Well, they... Oh man, they did the N64 port of Daikatana. <laughs> they had an N64 port? Yeah, it's better than the PC version because you don't have to babysit your bad AI companion because they had to cut it to make it work on the N64. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. They actually made an unreleased uh... Game Boy Color Daikatana game that's basically a Zelda knockoff and way better than any other thing bearing the name Daikatana. That's confusing. Speaking of cancelled games. It's, uh, I think it's legally available on the internet, because, like, John Romero or whoever just, like, released it, because it's like, well, I have the rights to it, and it's now on the internet. It's yours now. <laughs> huh. So, moral of the story, make better stuff, Kemco. You can do it. Go back to the Daikatana Game Boy Color of old. Should, uh, should I give my non-sequitur story about John Romero? Yes, please. Do it. So, um, I don't play PC games. I... I only started playing PC games basically when WoW came out. Before that, it was like, uh, you know, we had like an Apple II with Sesame Street mix and match. Oh, man, Apple II. I had like a 386 that could play Commander Keen. So, I mean, my PC gaming was minimal. Um, And so I was waiting at E3 to see an MMO, a space MMORPG that was canceled in the in the ensuing years. But basically the game wouldn't run in their booth. And so the PR lady was like, no problem. We have the game running in, uh, there was like a whole bunch of PC um, hardware developers there. They're like, no problem. We have it running in like the AMD booth or something like that. So head on over there. I'm going to grab my notes and, and a cup of coffee and I'll meet you over there. So I wander over to the AMD booth or, you know, whatever it was. And there's this guy standing there and he's semi-tall and um, 
but he kind of looks like a rock star. He's got like this super long gray hair and I'm looking at him and I feel like I should recognize him. And I'm looking at him and I'm looking at him and he finally realizes that I'm staring at him and he's like, hey, what's up? And I'm like, I feel like I should recognize you. And he kind of smiles and goes, oh. I said, have you ever been to PAX? And he goes, no, I've never been to PAX. I said, oh, okay. And so the PR lady comes and gets me and I go off to play my game. But I write down his name on a piece of paper so that I can remember to ask people later on. And so I go to the hotel. And I hop on IRC and I'm like, hey, guys, have any of you heard of someone called John Romero? (laughs) And Seventh basically killed me. (laughs) He was so upset. (laughs) Oh, my God. And so to this day, every once in a while, someone on staff asks me if I know who John Romero is. (laughs) As I do now. Who could this John Romero be? <laughs> Hold on, I have to leave myself a note for totally unrelated reasons. <laughs> right, oh, I was going to say that... Can I ask that, uh, in a month if I know who John Romero is? <laughs> um, <Definitely>. Probably. <laughs> uh, I was going to say that Romero actually has a Kickstarter going, but apparently they put that on hold at some point. Huh. Uh, they are apparently putting it on hold so that they can make a playable demo and make another go at it. Is it bad that I didn't know he's not with ID anymore? Yes, it's it's it, id. id it's like whatever. You're rating it, but uh, like most of like the classic id team has been gone for quite a long time. I feel like Carmack was the last that left it, and he left in like 2014 to go right. work on Oculus. But John Romero hasn't been with id for. Decades. See the one that did uh, um, Day Katana. Yes, that was what yep. caused this discussion in its entirety. Uh, I remember things. Eventually, uh, I'll give you. I'll give you the fact that you are tired. Oh, I'm not tired, but I am unwell, so I have yeah. that. I've See, got. Yeah, I, I've got an for a excuse. Time. He was in like cell phone game hell, back when there was like no no joy to be made of that. Didn't he make like but a Doom RPG? There was a Doom cell phone RPG that he may have had some involvement with. I do not recall. He was at Midway for all of seven minutes to like manage the crash and burn of the PS2 Gauntlet reboot, Gauntlet Seven Sorrows, and I'm like, he's been he's been everywhere really. Wow. <clears throat> well. On that note, I'm just going to transition into our next question from Budai, which is, has modern culture negatively affected JRPGs? I look back at the SNES trilogy of Final Fantasy games, while they may have had influences, they had a style that was strange. The Final Fantasy XV demo starts out seemingly very influenced by modern movie making, almost, uh, I assume he means Naughty Dog-like, and yeah. the overall artistic style seems like something from a magazine ad. I'm not writing the game off, but I almost feel like the otherworldliness is missing. I think that has as much to do with the fact that there's no, there's a lesser need for abstraction based on the amount, the kind of graphics they're going for. Like a lot of early Final Fantasy games feel weird because, like, they're trying to communicate like ideas or complex shapes 
emotions or objects with like 200 pixels. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think that's kind of part of it. Just that uh, you had less to work with on the SNES, so you had to be a lot more creative. I don't necessarily think it's anything overly complicated than that. Um. <coughs> 15 is definitely going for a less otherworldly uh, world aesthetic, but I think that's sure. a deliberate design choice. Yeah, and I mean, we'd like go for something that is uncannily similar to the real world, but also still has tons of weird fantasy elements poking at the seams. Yeah, and I mean, if you want to just go back to 13, that one obviously was a lot more in- invent- inventive as far as art style goes. So. I feel like it's also partially because of what we've seen a bit. Like the uh, the bits in uh, the platinum demo felt like they like when you were seeing you saw bits and pieces of like uh, proper cities, and they were still like like they were proper cities, but they were slightly more fantastical because you got to see more like architecture as yeah. opposed to wide open fields. Also, I think Final Fantasy XV is pretty fantastical. You're a prince that basically got shooed out of the capital by your wife-to-be and your dad to go on a boys' trip with your three besties. I mean, it's not high fantasy in the same way that Cecil sets off as a dark knight and realizes that he's actually a paladin, and by the way, his half-brother is an evil jerk and so is his best friend. Also the moon. <laughs> also, it turns out that both of them were being controlled by the moon. Because the moon. But, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it's, it's just different fantasy aesthetic, but it's not really not fantasy. It just approaches fantasy from a different direction. And I mean, nostalgia's always going to give us a bit of a rose-tinted approach to the games that we played when we were young. I mean, there are games that I played when I was young that I thought were super special awesome, but I strongly suspect if I went back and played them as an adult, I'd be like, ugh, really? I liked this? <laughs> Formative I mean, experience. There's some games that I have absolutely gone back to and be like, yeah, I liked this! <laughs> what you find out as you become an adult is more just that, like, whether it's something... Whether liking something had anything to do with its quality is as much a coin flip as anything. Yeah. Well, then, you know, it causes like, some controversy in this house, because I played very little Chrono Trigger when it came out. Oh, no. I only played Chrono Trigger no. when it came to the oh, place. No, show. don't go down this path. And so, don't do you it. Know, I, I have publicly admitted that I like Chrono Cross more than I like Chrono Trigger. <gasps> I've gone on the record, and and that has caused some controversy. Okay, just so, just so you're not alone in controversy, I like Final Fantasies four, five, and seven more than six. Ooh. Well, we'll have lots of feedback for the show. Yeah, I'm sure that I'm sure that someone will demand at least at least one person will demand each of our heads, possibly the same person. So, you know, that would be fantastic. <laughs> well, you, you know, I'm going to join in this parade too. Um, I don't think the original Legend, Legend of Zelda holds up at all. Oh, yeah, I don't like the first that. two Legend of Zeldas at all. I mean, anything before Link to the Past is blah. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, uh, 
But two, two, two was two always, is like usually always un- garbage. Controversially disliked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Saying uh, that the I, original I, doesn't hold up would definitely get me some fl- some flack for sure. Because <laughs> there's people that want the new ones to be uh, exactly like the original. More like that yeah, one. So. And I remember playing the game that played like the original Legend of Zelda and hating the hell out of that too. It was called 3 d Game Heroes. Nice. Except that one also had random Dragon Quest jokes in it. That was weird. <laughs> Three D Game Heroes was a weird game. I wanted to like it more than I did. It had a really great aesthetic. Yeah. Uh, what you gotta do? Damn. What, were, what was the question about? The question was just about like whether oh, yeah, modern like, culture spent some ephemeral aspect of uh, Final Fantasy law. Or if it's or if it's just a play of the head. I think we can all agree that yeah, play of the head. Yeah. Pretty much. Little column A, little column kids. B. Yeah. But I think yeah. culture is always going to have some There's, effect. But yeah. Even if like even if Final Fantasy's development team had frozen in place, they were never going to look the same afterwards. Yeah. Okay, uh, so we got a, we <coughs> in that vein, we have another question from Budai, which is Yoshitaka Amano. Did I pronounce that right? That's correct. Okay. Is a genius, and it's a shame his art has yet to be fully realized in 3D game form. I wish there was a game that took his art and realized it to the fullest, like Dragon Quest VIII did with... Akira Toriyama. I think there is a cop out saying it doesn't fit to 3D art when the cell shading exists. Well... The problem is Amano's art doesn't really look like animation cells the way that, like, Toriyama's tends to. Like, cell shading... Right, and I I think it's that they come come from two different sort of schools of art. Yeah. I mean... Uh... Sorry, the guy who does Dragon Ball is... Toriyama. Toriyama. Yeah. Toriyama draws like manga that becomes anime, and so he draws things that logically make sense. Um. Oh my gosh, I'm totally blanking on names. Like, like there's definitely like angle cheats that are always going on with like uh, with Toriyama, but like as a general rule, his his designs have an, are designed in a way that, like, he's used to them being represented in other mediums, so his de- designs tend to translate to other mediums more easily. Right. Whereas I mean, even, even it's it's pra- is a practical artist versus a concept artist. And yeah, like even is, even we on don't the... normally see concept art for a game. No. And when we do, it's in an art book, and it's like, wow, that totally didn't make it into the game. And so. Yeah. I, I feel like it's comparing apples to tangerines. <laughs> like, yeah, like even food, but I mean, one has a, one yeah. has a people that's edible and the other one doesn't. One's sour and the other one's sweet. And it, yeah, technically like, they're fruit, but so. Like even when Amano was the lead artist, whose like character designs were used for, for all the characters, like you still saw them heavily, heavily reinterpreted try to fit them and, into... And, that, and I think that's the important sort of delineation between the two. Concept artist, game artist. And, like, they clearly still love Amano's art 
because like he he always has to do like the logo for every Final Fantasy is his concept art. And they did and, this like, cool, like um, Final Fantasy when they did the big Final Fantasy event, they actually sort of three Dized one of his. Um, he does like these huge gallery pieces. Yeah. And so he did one that's sort of like a, a Mobius loop for the Final Fantasy uh, 15 event, and it was cool. Yeah, and that like that sounds like something that was designed like by making it a Mobius loop. You can see like a design, an eye for like presenting it in a way other than as concept art on a page. But uh, the other thing, like the closest thing I can think of that might even come close to what you're looking for, is obscure Dreamcast Capcom published. RPG Eldorado's Gate that I think Amano like directed that but I'm not even sure how much of that is 3D. It looked like some of the characters were some vague cell shaded 3D but the backgrounds were 2D. Eldorado's Gate was weird and basically forgotten uh, but that might be something to look into if you want to see as close to that as they ever came. I think um, El Shaddai sort of kind of looks like his art style. Mostly in the sense that it's intricate looking. Yeah, but I mean that's about the closest I can think of, and you know that's not even a perfect match. Yeah, like I get the feeling that that like Amano is, you know, like someone that wants to just like he just wants to make the art that he enjoys, and he doesn't want to feel constrained by the need to make it match up to another medium that he's not working in. And so that's why you end up with, like, you know, these these other artists that do more, like, work in other, me- like, other, like, in the design space or in working with other mediums a lot more t- tend to have their designs much more faithfully reproduced in 3D because, like, they're there to work on it and say, well, this is sort of, like, what I'm going for, and, like, they can make those alterations to suit the new medium a little more. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for example, you look at that um, uh, level five game. Why am I drawing a blank on this? Nino Kuni. Thank you, Nino Kuni, and that's like a perfect transition of that art style because uh, it's you know coming from a studio that does m- movies, so it's like a perfect transition. Yeah, they're used to like the only difference is that it's three D. Exactly. So this reminds me, what the heck happened to Nino Kuni too? I haven't heard anything about it. Uh, um, check back with us at TGS. Sounds good. When is TGS? September. September, okay. Not like we have a shortage of games to play, anyway. Yeah, I'm September looking forward 15th to, through 18th. I'm looking forward to the deluge of uh, Ni no Kuni puns to happen again, just like it did last time. <laughs> now... I doubt they're going to use the same distributor that they did last time. Hmm. Uh, I mean, all of those problems were were completely the just the the collector's edition distributor. They suck. Uh, uh, and I kind that's of one of those things you just never hear about unless you're like plugged into that uh, area. So, it'll be interesting to see what uh, comes out of that. Like, Nino Kuni was a game I wanted to like more than I did. That was like uh, uh, Namco Bandai. Was that like was that like a digital river store? Yep. 
Ah, uh, that's what I thought. They have ditched I've heard them. nothing but bad things about that. <laughs> Digital River <laughs> is balls to work with on either side of the equation. Yeah, I remember... No one wants to work with them. <laughs> I remember doing a few orders from the Square Enix store when they used them, and it was, it was not fun. They're, they're they must awful. have successfully made themselves look very attractive for about two years there. Yeah, they were cheap. <laughs> They were uh, really yeah. And that was the thing is they kind of cropped up in a time where people were looking for different distribution um venues and they were cheap and they were easy to work with except they did things like sell 125% of the collector's editions that they absolutely knew the number of before they opened up pre-orders. Whoops. <laughs> Well and, then. Then, and even better is when they start losing orders. But don't worry, well, we have find to make up that twenty-five percent somewhere. <laughs> they're just—they're a bloody nightmare. Well then. Glad I don't have to work with them. <laughs> Me either. Glad they uh, won't be handling my Final Fantasy Fifteen Super Ultra they Special Edition. Won't. That thing! I'm so jealous of you. <laughs> Hey, I was sitting there. Pre-ordered that. <laughs> I, I I saw it like it was there. Like I could have grabbed an Xbone edition, which is fine. I have Xbone sitting around, but it was like I cannot possibly ever justify like three hundred and fifty dollars on this object. Yeah, I may be selling a few old games, you know, in the coming months. If anyone's interested. <laughs> I I was almost tempted to buy one, but then it was like. I can't justify spending RP Gamers money on this. <laughs> if I can't justify spending RP Gamers money on it, I'm certainly not going to try to justify spending my money on it. But think of all the unboxing videos you could have made. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I am, I've been a Final Fantasy fan my whole life, so I'm like just a sucker for any sort of special edition. Like, I got the special edition of Final Fantasy Explorers. I think that game sucks! Uh, yeah, we ended up thought getting that game a sucked. collector's edition of Final Fantasy Explorers, and I need to find my copy, because my copy is just a regular edition, and I need to fob it off on somebody, because I don't like that game. <laughs> yeah, that's not very good. I, I enjoyed that, because you kn- knew you didn't like that game, because yeah. you played it a year before. <laughs> yeah, here, here, here's a funny story. I pre-ordered that game, and then, you know, they came out with a demo, so I downloaded that on my Japanese 3DS, hated it, and I'm like, went to see if I can go cancel my pre-order, and it had already shipped. <laughs> and then you did it again! <laughs> Except this time they didn't we release else. a new, They didn't release an Eng- English demo, they knew what would happen. I, I got nothing. <laughs> I have the nice, you know, like oversized box sitting next to me. It's got cool art. On it. It's got cool art on it. Come on. You like you have a it's giant pretty. box full of things that you don't like. There was the soundtrack too, which is had no good tracks on it. Name a track from it. A track. I, I don't know. I. There we go. In any case, I'll probably end up getting like the regular vanilla collector's edition because I'm probably going to want like the stupid movie it comes with because I'll watch it and just laugh at Sean Bean. Uh, Sh- Sean Bean is in it? He's the, he plays the king in the movie. Oh, and the king dies, doesn't he? <laughs> probably. <laughs> like, 
let's be real. He's Sean Bean. He's probably going to die. <laughs> Poor Sean Bean. Oh, when I saw when I saw who he is cast as in the first season in Game of Thrones, it's just like why, why? Oh. Uh, let's move forward. Then. Okay. Oh, we're going to have a brief musical interlude, and then we're going to get into a fun question. <laughs> so hang in there. Next question comes from a staff member, Cassandra, a.k.a. Strawberry Eggs. And I don't think I actually put the text in the show notes. One second here. Okay, here we go. Well, I'm not sure if I should read this part, but I'm going to read it anyway. I'm saying this via email in order to prevent causing a flame war on the forums I moderate. Granted, I might just be delaying the inevitable once this gets recorded. Anyway, there has been a lot of hubbub over the past several months of censorship in video games, especially those published by Nintendo. I think primarily those published by Nintendo. One common accusation at this accusation is that this is a recent phenomena and Nintendo has been going crazy with it. I feel like the people making these accusations have limited memories or are unaware of Nintendo's history and I'm adding this in myself. Never played this SNES port of Mortal Kombat. I can think of many games from 2000 onward that have changes major and minor from the Japanese to the Western version while it's certainly gotten better since the NES and SNES days when crosses were removed and the Holy Spell and Final Fantasy was changed to Pearl. Edits and censorship have always been done and at about the same level. This is how it seems to me, though. What do you guys think? Editing's localization. Okay, short and to the point. Like, <laughs> that's, that's what a localization is. They are trying to edit it so that it, you will get the same thoughts that they were intending, like... Pure translation cannot translate cultural context. Localization editing is designed to make it so that you get the same ideas transferred across, not just the same words. And the problem that we run into is there are boneheaded changes that get made, and there... The problem is, is that there's no gray area. You either have to be it's a black... I don't know why people need feel the need to take a strong black or white stance to this. Either no changes are acceptable or any change is acceptable. And it's a little bizarre because I think that some changes make sense. I think that some changes are really dumb. For example, they changed an Indian into a cowboy in Bravely Second. And that was kind of dumb as far as I'm concerned. But at the same time... Um, Natsume put out a game called Carnage Heart EXA and uh, it got submitted to the ESRB and it came back as M and we said well crap 
Matsume just doesn't release M-rated games. So mm-hmm. what can we do to get a teen rating? Literally, the only thing we had to do was to remove a gun in a guy's hand in one scene. <laughs> <laughs> so we did. That's all it takes to get an M rating? Well, the guy was also talking about killing himself. Okay, go there. So it was. The gun easy. goes away, he makes we... his suicidal ideation seems less serious. Gotcha. And so that was. We had the choice between changing the text or removing the gun. So we took away the gun. And that was literally. No one complained. In fact, most people didn't know the difference. In fact, um, that version of the game is available in every single other region, including Region 3, which Natsume doesn't normally publish to. The only place that you can find a gun in that guy's hand is Japan. Hmm. If you didn't patch your game. <laughs> Interesting. Uh... The problem that we're running into is, this is a sexy topic to talk about. So, oh, yeah. of course, there's, pound, there's the Pound Fire Emblem game, Fire Emblem Cross SMT. And I can't, for the life of me, Tokyo Mirage, blah blah Pound Fire Emblem. <laughs> That's a much better name. I, I just want to call it Pound Fire Emblem forever now. That's, I mean, that's as, as far as I'm concerned, that's what I'm calling it, Pound F.E. The problem that Pound F.E. is running into is there was pre-launch footage. And then the game came out. And then the game came out in Europe. And so we have sort of this mishmash of people crying foul about censorship where some things changed between when the game was in development and released and between the Japanese version and the European version. So there, one of the girls' outfits was basically um, like booty shorts. And at some point between development when like last year at E3 a video was put out to when the game launched in Japan her booty shorts got changed to capris the problem is is that you have these people that are putting out these ooh look at the censorship videos and they've placed these pre-production videos next to the European version and are crying censorship it's like but Saying that's that it was not the same in the Japanese Yeah, it's like, guys, this is how it is in the Japanese version. Stuff changes in production to launch all the time. And it's just, the thing that bugs me is I think that we can have a, a civil conversation about it, but it starts getting messy because all of a sudden you have a group of people who basically jump in and say, well, I wanted it the way that it was before, and... I don't want them to minimize the sexualization of underage characters. Booty because... shorts or no sale. And that's the thing. <laughs> A tiny strip of virtual fabric is something I'm willing to go to war over. And I mean, uh, uh... real talk time, we have a magnificently large population of gamers who either are unaware or don't care about minor localization changes. The problem is, is that people who care about localization changes tend to congregate with other people who don't like localization changes. So you end up getting this incredible 
echo chamber that you can just live in on social media and comments on video game sites where you feel like you are the clear majority when you're just not. <laughs> and that's the a amount of people persuaded is probably people, there are people who decry uh, localization changes as censorship and they think that they represent a minority that they don't understand that they're not. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I am still completely baffled by all the hubbub about the changes to the recent Fire Emblem games, because eh, some of them were boneheaded. I don't think sure. the about pickles needed to talk about pickles quite that much. That's that's fine, but one of the biggest things seemed to be removing the mini game, which I have said since I played the Japanese version, is the worst mini game Nintendo has ever produced, <laughs> ever. And I've played Mario Party. And you know the funny <laughs> and the funny thing is is I played Criminal Girls, um, invitation only on the Vita. And the funny thing is is as kind of pervy as those as the mini games absolutely were, they were really well designed. I have to give it to them. Yeah, I mean, um <laughs> Valhalla Knights I would 3. never wanted to play that game in public though. Valhalla Knights three. The- that I, I feel of, like piece that, of garbage that had a better at least, mini game. <laughs> I, I feel like those mini games were considered much more central, as opposed to this, where it's just like, yeah, lash it onto Fire Emblem, see what happens. Well, and the problem is, is that I think a fair argument is being made in that if you want the original version that badly, it's time to learn Japanese. Yeah. There are lots of tools out there for you to do so. And I know that that's a suggestion that requires an ample amount of effort, and it requires a lot less effort than getting on Twitter and tweeting to Nintendo, fuck you and your changes. But if you want it that bad, that option is out there. Yeah. Go take it. If you really care as much as you say you do, take that option. It's there for you. It's, uh,. And hey, your Japanese does get better as you expose yourself to more Japanese media. Like, yeah, my active study I mean, is quite work, poor, but like... I know people that work in translation now because they started playing Japanese video games. Yeah. It, like, when they were like in their late teens. Yeah. <sighs> I just... I, I cannot, cannot figure out the all or nothing mentality. Just drives me nuts. And that's the thing is, it's like I don't necessarily agree with the statement that all localization changes are censorship. I absolutely agree with the statement that there have been some dumb mistakes made in localization changes. Absolutely. But I I hate the idea that we have to paint every localization change as wrong and bad. Context matters, and you know, sometimes a little dealing with a little bonehead is okay. It's just like um, the example I kind of thought of was um, drinking a lot of mercury will kill you, but it's okay to eat tuna. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Well, it's okay the- if a game has some bonehead localization changes, as long as the core game is fine. It's the interesting okay. thing is, is in terms of bravely second. Um, they actually had a really um, honest conversation about the Catmancer 
And one of the guys was like, we spent like an entire two days convinced that we should call it the Necromancer, which I think <laughs> is awesomely <laughs> hilarious. But at the same time, I am invested enough in Japanese culture to understand what Neko is. And yeah. I think that there's a huge amount of people that play video games, including JRPGs, including that there are people that play games that only come from Japan who probably have no idea what a Neko is or means. Yeah. Yeah. And so they went with Catmancer. And so, yeah, they could have gone with the nerdier name, which would have been like, you know, you know, people like us would have appreciated that name. But at the same time, you have to think about the rest of the audience, which is a lot more mainstream and may not be necessarily versed in Japanese slang and culture. Yeah. And so, yeah, Catmancer it was. That... And I totally don't, you know, I'm totally not down on them for that decision. I think it makes absolutely a ton of sense. And it's nice like, that they're, they're open about it, too. They want big box stores to stock this. So, like, there's, there's really only so much, like... A core, you know, core content that has like jokes that are centered around like a very small slice of the audience is kind of a no go. No go when you want to get larger sections of the market. Well, and you start to run into games like, um, say, Digimon Cyber Sleuth or mm -hmm. um, Akiba Strip, where you have these puns in the original Japanese game that are based off of the locations. Well, those locational puns don't play when they're, they're translated. They just, they don't make sense. They're not funny. And so how do you decide what to put in those text boxes instead? Yeah. You have to put something. You know, this reminds me of uh, one thing that annoyed me about the localization of Disgaea 4 was uh, they used some word that I guess is pretty common in anime, sundere. Yeah, Sundere shows up and, a lot. And <laughs> I had no idea what it meant. What it meant? I was like, "What? No clue." And that that really annoyed me. I still me. struggle with the concept of Sundere. I just I have to have Adam kind of explain <laughs> me every time it comes up. It 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 just and there was like no context or explanation for it either. So it's it, like it's it weird because like it's like. It's not normally a word you hear outside of describing a character archetype. Um, there's actually a hilarious meme in the uh, in the anime fan translation community, and it's called "All According to Keikaku," and Keikaku oh, means plan in Japanese. And so I can't remember what anime did it. It was Death Note. It was okay. And so whoever fan translated Death Note. In the in the bottom translation said all according to Keikaku and there was a little star beside it and at the top of the screen it says Keikaku means plan. <laughs> and so like people no just kind of it was here. it was ridiculous. It was like why would you not translate that word and then put another note about what that what that word actually means? And so there's all of these other fan translated animes that have Keikaku and the little star and the explanation somewhere else on the screen. <laughs> Uh, but I mean, like if you're if you're translating, yeah, if you're going to use a word, you need to words. know that your audience, all of your audience, is going to understand it. Yeah, yeah. I would imagine that they probably like came to the conclusion that like enough of the audience for Disgaea are anime nerds that they can get away with it. But... Well, they didn't <sighs> get away with it with me. 
I'm pretty sure I mentioned it in the review. Didn't that word show up in Mugen Souls too? I don't know, man. Pretty sure. <laughs> that one used moe a lot, which is an even harder to pin down. Concept. I mean, that was that was a that was a <laughs> that was one of the gameplay features was moe. Just like I that's like I don't know how to define that because it's such a confused concept. Uh. Moe. Um. Yeah, I don't know, man. It's. I think we've got. Uh, we've just about wrapped this New up. New Gen Souls was actually pretty well localized. All things be told, a better localization <laughs> than it earned. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, I think bottom line is is we need to have a serious discussion about dumb localization changes, but I think we have to kind of toe that really important line that not all localization is censorship and not all localization changes are made with I I would argue no localization changes are made with malice or like screw you player mentality in mind and I think if we kind of go into that discussion with sort of those um With sort of those facts in mind, I think it kind of leads to a better discussion because then we're in that gray area where we can have a difference of opinion. Maybe some there are lots of people that don't care that the that the Indian got changed to the cowboy because they think the cowboy is awesome. Cool. I think it's a little stupid. Maybe there's some people that actually think the mini game in Fire Emblem is good, and <laughs> and Wales can okay. have a long, angry discussion with them. But yeah. at the same time, at least you could have an actual discussion. I also <laughs> think it's important, uh, as apparently was not the case with uh, Pound Fire Emblem, to actually find out if the localization change is actually actually a localization change. Or if it was just a change through the development of From, the game. Yes, that's that seems to be pretty important. That's kind of an important thing. Yeah. That's a that's an important thing when deciding if if you're going to be angry about a localization change, you you should probably know whether it's actually a localization change. Yeah. So and I mean, I think it's good that, you know, um, players stay, you know, in, involved in this discussion because companies do kind of need to be held accountable. It's like, did you, and it's hard to say to them, did you need to change this? I think it's important to them to say, I didn't like this change and this is why. Yeah. And I think that's a really important discussion. I think that's a really important piece of feedback to bring a company. What I think isn't a great discussion point to bring to a company is, screw you, I'm never buying another Nintendo game, you localization Nazis. <laughs> and we've it's seen gonna... tweets like that. Yep. <laughs> that's not constructive. Uh... It's cool the better that they don't want to buy when... their games. They need a better explanation of why you're not going to do that. The better and by part the way, if you the... actually say you're not going to buy a game, I better not find out two weeks later that you're actually playing that game. <laughs> cough, cough, cough. Yeah, yeah, that's the better part. Is that the more angrily you proclaim you're not buying a game, the less seriously I take your boycott. Yeah. Certainly didn't seem to be a lot of people that didn't buy Fire Emblem. 
Yeah. Yeah, that really tanked that game. <laughs> and I mean, I respect people that truly and and heartfully believe, hey, what they did is wrong. I'm not buying that game because my money goes towards supporting something that I just can't get behind. I respect that. Um, I'm not buying a game because I can't pet my people in the face. Yeah. Okay. Go play Valhalla Knights 3 and, you know, tell me how that turns out. <laughs> Clearly you just need to buy Fire Emblem Awakening and Valhalla Knights 3 and every time you talk to a person in Fire Emblem, pat someone in Valhalla Knights. <laughs> I mean, don't be that person that craps on Nintendo on their Facebook and Twitter and says how outraged you are about these changes, and then two weeks later you are literally tweeting screenshots of you playing that game. Don't be that person. <laughs> no, Please it's, don't okay, be that person. It. It's fine, I stole it. It's fine. That's even worse. <laughs> I know, that drives I know. me crazy. Ugh. I don't like the way you did something in this game, thus I am going to steal your game <laughs> to prove that I am right. No! That's not Take how that. it works. <laughs> I have answered your wrong with theft. <laughs> I, ha job. I have answered your oh, non-crime sure. with crime. <laughs> Anyways. That's just escalating the situation. <laughs> <laughs> I can't take much of this. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just glad that I don't. That it's much rarer for me to look at a game and realize that like half of it got chopped out of the American version, and so it's hard for me to look at this with a clear eyes. Uh, I don't know. I. It's interesting because some. Uh, uh, one last point I think I want to make because it came up in the, in the the interview, for um. So at at PAX East. They did a panel about Bravely Second, and they talked about some of the changes that they made between the North American and the Japanese version. And basically, one of the things that they talked about is, in the Japanese version of the game, um, there are... So, in Bravely Second, there are numerous side quests. And all the side quests are oh, to, unlock oh, the, to unlock the um, asterisks of the original classes available in Bravely Default. And so in the Japanese version, what ends up happening is, is you go and do the quest, you pick one side or the other, and you are left with this very unsatisfying result because you're kind of mourning the decision you make, no matter what decision you make. And then you can go back a second time and you can either pick the same side again and sort of resolve yourself to, well, this was the best decision I could have made with the information that I have. And it's a it's the sort of true ending to that quest. Or you can go back and get the other asterisks and get an equally unsatisfying ending. It's like, oh, we screwed up. We didn't pick the right side. And so you ended up having to fail, fail, succeed, succeed. And so the the feedback that they got from Japanese players was, that sucks. Having these forced <laughs> failure endings is crap. Because it just makes you feel like you've made a terrible decision no matter what. And even though you can go back and redeem yourself, it doesn't really replace the sort of cr crappy feeling that you had the first time you went through. And it so for the North American... 
And so for the North American and the European version, they chopped off the crappy endings. So basically, when you go and have to choose between Red Mage and Thief, you basically end both stories, no matter which one you pick with. We chose the best that we could with the information that we had. And we're cool with it. We've made our piece. And you can go back and pick the other one. And they basically have sort of a similar thing where it's like, well, we chose and this was our decision and we've made peace with it. And I like that setup so much better because it still took me over 70 hours to beat Bravely Second. I can't imagine how much more time and more aggravation it would have been if I had had to do all of those side quests two more freaking times to get the whole story. <laughs> yeah, like it's it's already a long game and like it's a long game. It... And I played it on easy and I turned <laughs> off random encounters when I repeated content. So I even cut down on the time that I needed to play the game and it still took me 70 hours. Wow. I quite like the game, by the way. It's well done. Yeah, I've heard some things that make it sound like it would address the issues I had with Bravely Default. So I might yes, and that is the thing, is because you don't have to do those quests four times, <laughs> is so much better than the first game. I And, and I... It, drove me crazy because as much as I enjoyed the first game, there were a lot of moments where I thought to myself, oh my god, why am I still playing this? And I never had one of those moments in Bravely Second. That's hard to be here. So, <sighs> you know, cha that change wasn't made strictly for the North American European audience. It was made based off of the feedback that they received from the Japanese players. Yeah. So like when that, it, it was interesting to them to to talk about the fact that hey, this this was a decision not you know to shoe content for you guys. It was we felt this was better, and yeah. the feedback from the players backed it up. Nice. That's one of those things that like I think happens occasionally where it's like that the need to insert localization into a game, it's also giving the developer another couple months to take in feedback about what the game was. So, that happened a lot with minor, like, pacing and flow edits. And now that we have that very <laughs> um, controversial conversation, our, like, <laughs> sixth or seventh one of the evening on record, <laughs> I, I'm leaving you fine gentlemen for the rest of your podcast. Well, thank you for joining us. About to take a sharp nose, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's going to be death threats on the on the forums once this goes up. I'm sure of it. Don't worry, we've earned them. Oh, Maybe you, you haven't, but we have. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. Thank you. Yeah. All right, so we are going to move on to our final question of the night. And I, yeah, and I'm gonna have Dave read it since I'm partially losing my voice, and I will probably yeah, lose it completely it. trying to read this whole thing. Uh, having played the okay, so uh, who sent this? This is from Michael. Yeah. Michael. yeah. Uh, having played the 
the Grand Kingdom beta this week and enjoying the experience quite a lot and excited about the full release, it got me to thinking about what has happened to the SRPG genre as a whole in Japan this past decade. It seems since the PS1 slash PS2 generations, SRPGs, whether they may be traditional ones like Final Fantasy Tactics, Shining Force, uh, the Ogre series, or simulation games, uh, Dark Wizard, Brigandine, and Dragon Force, are all but extinct today, particularly on sunny platforms. Fire is as popular as it has ever been. Valkyria Chronicles was one of the most successful Steam games for a Japanese game in terms of sales. And the Tactics Ogre remake on PSP became one of the most popular games late in the PSP cycle. Even on PC, we've seen a great amount of rejuvenation and popularity, with Paradox Games, Civilization, and Revival of the XCOM franchise leading the way. So it seems to me that there's a healthy market out there that would love to play strategy games, whether on console or handheld systems out there still. Why is there such a lack of interest in Japan, uh, in Japan today with the exception of Fire Emblem this decade? And what series would you like to see return or believe would have similar success as Fire Emblem has recently enjoyed if given the opportunity? Wanted to add that I've enjoyed your shows. Okay, yeah, yeah. We, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you've enjoyed, by the way. I just, yeah, don't want to go on the... Uh, yeah. On the um, self-praising parade. Yeah. We appreciate the praise, but like it seems rude to read it on air. Yeah, um, we really appreciate uh, all the kind thoughts. Thank you. Yeah, and definitely. Hope, hope you enjoy um, all the future shows. Hopefully. Uh, um, My immediately thought is Shining Force, as far as games I'd love to see come back. Yeah, and not like Monkey's Paw Shining Force. <laughs> Monkey's Paw Shining Force. <laughs> I, oh my god. That is, that is I, awesome. <laughs> There's a shining force that has come back in the past, but it's not an, a tactical RPG, and it hurts us every time. Uh, I still have it. I can't get rid of it because it was a gift, and I'd feel bad getting rid of it. I know that feeling. There are games that I have that are like that. Yeah. Um, but shining, like, yeah, shining force. Like, I feel like the problem that SRPGs run into is that they don't. They're not really like, the obvious bet in a hit-driven industry. Like... Like, the successful ones tend to be relatively low-budget, relatively moderate-sized returns. Like, Fire Emblem does really well for its genre, and it's, you know, it's still doing, you know... Like... It it does really well. It sells, like, a couple... I think Awakening did, like, a couple million units, and... uh, Fates is on track to do better than that. Yep. But like, you know, it's it's a relatively low budget game with, you know, there's still like high budget compared to what they've been, but relatively low budget game, medium sized return. For hit driven industry, like you get tons of things where it's like, like giant, you know, you still have to commit development or resources and time to these, but like you don't expect as huge of a return as you expect on the latest big action RPG uh, shooter, whatever you want to call, like the big AAA games. So yeah, I mean, they tend to sort of be the domain of smaller publishers. I mean, you look at uh, something recently, Valkyria Chronicles, uh, which I think eventually sold pretty well, but still it was probably after it went down in price and I, I know that on PS3 it bombed. Yeah. Well, I think it eventually sold well by word of mouth, but I think by that point it was already like selling for 20 bucks. So. Yeah, and and that's the reason that I would imagine that Sega is leery about just taking the P the PC sales as any indicator because that launched at a reduced price on PC. Right. 
Step right said it never would if it had been an actual new game. And that's that's just kind of like a thing that you have to worry about when you like release an old game and you see some interest. It's like, is there that much interest, or was it that people knew about it and it, it was cheap? Yeah, and you know, I think another recent example, XCOM, which the first one, the first, uh, I don't want to say the first one, the first, the first reboot, the first reboot launched on consoles and PCs, and there's even a mobile phone version. Which eventually got ported to yeah. Vita. Hey, synergy to one of our earlier questions. <laughs> um, but the new one is PC only, and which makes me wonder about how it actually sold on platforms other than PC. Yeah, I, like, <coughs> I, I can't imagine that it did super well on consoles, or they would have found a way to make it work. Sure, and but you know. The expansion version did launch on consoles as well, so it's yeah. it's really hard to gauge, you know? Like, how, how much of a market is there for this on consoles? Yeah, and then, exactly. Like, you, you do still get these. I mean, like, I, I cry in the wilderness for Super Robot Wars approximately once every seven minutes. <laughs> um, I feel like there is a chance for the Super Robot Wars original generation games to carve out a following here if they're willing to give it a shot but uh, uh, like th those are considered successful they sell like 300,000 units in Japan? yeah oh, you mean here? In, that's what they sell no, in Japan? Japan? oh okay yeah and like you know there's, there's clearly like some interest in that sort of game because I mean like Project Cross Zone sold way better than they expected and I'm given to understand Crosszone 2 didn't sell as well, although I think that might be because Crosszone 1 is not great and it probably poisoned the well a little bit. Yeah. But uh, I'm, I've heard Crosszone 2 is a lot better. I keep being tempted by it. But... Uh, those localization pictures. Those localization pictures are magical. They sold me on the um, game. Those, you, those you call that a Genesis? Does it even have blast processing? The the best part about it is like them forcing Sagata Sanshiro into English for the yes. very first time. Yes. <laughs> and he starts talking about how the Saturn will soon have network capabilities. <laughs> I love I love you, Sagata Sanshiro. Oh, You're that's, better than we deserved. That's beautiful. <laughs> but Yeah, like I feel like it's a genre that, like, I know that I consider myself, like, I, I've really dove into that genre over the past couple of years, like, and I, I'm considering myself more and more a fan of it, but, like, it's it's one of those things where it's, like, I feel like it's a genre where you're either quite dedicated to it or you're not that interested in it, and I feel like yeah. that kind of translates into how they sell. And, and the other issue that you run into is that, like, you know, so look at say Tactics Ogre and Final Fantasy Tactics. The two are basically synonymous with the same guy that doesn't work there anymore. Yeah. Like the only other person that really worked in Evil Ace games was Akitoshi Kawazu, and people generally complained about the games he made. Yeah, so well, those, those people are whiners, and they don't know what they're talking about. <coughs> I've got a copy of Grimoire of the Rift that I need to actually sit down and play. But uh, yeah, I still 
still haven't played through that either. I don't, you know, I I don't know. Every time I try and sit down and play that game, just something get happens. into another misguided competition about it. I agree, because I would like some sort of excuse to actually finish it. We could report our findings after each and uh, each recording session, presuming that I hadn't finished it by the second one. <laughs> I think this is a wonderful idea. Let's start this up. But oh, but we need some. We need stakes. That's the thing that's terrible. Like mm, like I can't pay for things, so I can't like send you money if this happens. Shh, I'm thinking of a nice you know stake right now. Give me a second. Oh wait, no, not not that kind of stake. Send me a stake. I want a stake. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, like I mean, I, I like tactics ogre. Uh, let us cling together for PSP. That was a very neat game, but like, would you even really want another Tactics Ogre? But without Yasumi Matsuno, I mean, like the last time that happened was like Night of Lotus, which I think is reasonably well liked. But before that, like, the Ogre games were never, never huge sellers, even in their heyday. Like, they were just in a business that was less beholden to put it. Like, if you're gonna do go anywhere, you go big. So, yeah. Come. To Ogre Battle Fight. Um, but yeah. There, there are games that are very much meant for audiences that love them, and people that don't play them don't really have much time a day to spare for them. They're not games that expand audiences very easily. So. Yeah. Um, and, well, and I think that's why we probably need more games like Fire Emblem, which kind of have an appeal that will bring in people that normally wouldn't play that kind of game. And that's, you know, that's why probably a lot of people got in through Final Fantasy Tactics because it was a Final Fantasy game, you know. Yeah, that Final Fantasy like branding helped a lot. But like even that they weren't that confident in because like Final Fantasy Tactics was infamously rare for years. Yeah. Uh, Not as rare as Ogre Battle on SNES, though. Or Ogre Battle Limited Edition for oh, PS1. Jeez. I've actually never been clear on how much difficulty it is to track down Person of Lordly Caliber, also made without the involvement of Yasuke Matsuna. Which but, one uh, is that? Is uh, it? That's M64. Oh. Uh, pretty rare, I believe, though it may have dipped in price slightly since that showed up on Virtual Console. Yeah, I once saw it mint in box in a video, a local game store, and I was like, "Oh, that's super nice. I'm never going to be able to afford that." But yeah. <laughs> you know, most a lot of the ogre battle games don't seem too bad now. I mean, I have uh, the two PS1 games, and I don't think I paid a whole ton for them. These, uh, the, this is a good uh, price range that I got for searching ogre battle sixty four eBay. Get mint in box twelve hundred dollars. Used cart only fifteen dollars. Okay. All right, that's I enjoy that's fair. seeing uh I enjoy seeing these like giant price ranges. Oh. I wonder how much a sealed copy of Panzer Dragon Saga would go for or if we any looked at even this. exist. We looked at this. We saw like one and it was $700. Not as high as I expected. Uh, actually. <laughs> But yeah, like if you want it with box, because N64 boxes are crappy cardboard uh, monstrosities that like die the second you breathe on them, 
uh, you're generally paying several hundred dollars. But if you want one without box, you can get one for fairly cheap. Um, in any case, uh, yeah, like the the things that generally keep these dreams alive are like smaller publishers. Like Nissa has been making essentially a strategy RPG. Well, not Nissa, but Nis has been making essentially a strategy RPG a year every year for the past fifteen years at this point. Uh, yeah. Like the things that keep the dream alive are those smaller publishers that are content to stay small. Idea Factory made a a good one. It was not actually developed by Idea Factory. It's developed by um. Why am I forgetting Sting? Developed Stang. by Sting. <laughs> As part of where's uh, the, the Super Sting? In my super life? Sting. Developed, I believe, Your as part of the, the, the Super Sting collaboration, which is still the greatest developer collaboration name of all time. Um, it's it's not as great as that time that frickin' uh, that Square made like a bizarre tiny studio that made one game before being folded back into Square uh, called Game Developers Studio. It was <laughs> it was. Uh, apparently, fifty-one percent owned by Akitoshi Kawazu. <laughs> All right, that's interesting. Um, and some brass balls to put like an entire studio and just like legally, this is Kawazu's baby. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I was gonna say though that uh, that particular game. Um, what the hell was I gonna say about it? Um, <coughs> uh, that particular game interests. Um, did a really good job with that franchise because, you know, those Neptunia games always have, like, these massive, stupid, ridiculous casts of characters and you have, like, a three, three-person three party, which doesn't particularly work all that great. So, you know, you'd get the whole... you get to actually use all the characters in the game. Um, but, you know, I, I, I could see... You know, a lot of franchise kind of franchises kind of doing uh, games in that kind of genre, just because you know people get to play with all their favorite characters and do things like that. And I'm not really talking like a crossover type game. I'm talking about you know like something. Uh, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, help me out here. Franchise with lots of characters. Um, Super Robot Wars. Wait. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, okay. So maybe something like um, a TV show type strategy RPG, where you could have like a uh, <coughs> fairy tale strategy RPG, where you get to use all the, all those cool characters and. Um, yeah. Yeah, I get what yeah, you mean. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm kind of rambling here. I just mean that if, it, it's a good genre where you can make full use of. Uh, a large cast of characters than you could in other types of genres, like fighting games, where you know you fight some characters against each other. But I think that concept kind of gets you. You quickly run into like the fact that building out an entire move set for each character is incredibly expensive. Yeah, and I, I think I just think that that whole concept of taking one franchise and turning it into a fighting game is a little played out. Um, yeah, I remember. Uh, but yeah, my favorite thing is that since Super Robot Wars took this to its illogical extreme and has like, oh, you need characters. I believe the largest series lineup is 35 series. Oh my god. 
that's like V three two or something. But like they they started ha- running into issues of like they like the mid two thousands. The cast lists get so large that there's no practical way for one player to be managing that many units. They start having to <laughs> so like each of them has a different squad system, trying to come to terms with like how do we make it so that a character can field all the units they. Uh, player can field as many like more of the units that they want to without them having to tediously manage each one and eventually they start like they have to come up with all these weird squad systems they finally seem to have settled on pairing units uh that's what most of them use nowadays but like alpha 2 has a slightly different one from alpha 3 which has an entirely different one from z and though and none of those systems behave like the ones in original generations for ps2 like they get so wrapped up in trying to figure out how do we let them field everyone they want to (laughs) so you know it's not a perfect idea but it helps (laughs) yeah (sighs) strategy RPGs Um, so Michael also sent us in kind of his uh, a long impression about the Grand Kingdom beta which yeah. it it is from the same developers as um, Granite his Granite history. Yeah, um, I don't know if you can paraphrase what he wrote there. Uh, there's a lot going there. down. Uh, it, uh, like part of the problem that I have is that I didn't play Granite history, so a lot of these I have no real context for. Animation graphics are gorgeous. That doesn't surprise me. It's vanillaware. Uh, there's a lot more meets the battles. 2D with an AP system where you can move around on a 2D plane with three lines. Uh, actual attacks feel a lot like Valkyria Chronicles. Uh, manually input attacks of weapon skills and spells based on how much AP you have left. Uh, spells have like a really specific like area of effect, so you need to worry a lot about where you are. Uh, you get <coughs> We're building morale. Uh, see, yeah, a lot of it. Like they look a lot like Granite history, but there seems to be, yeah, there's like, like there's so much here to parse. It's a it's a very long, uh, like explanation. I really only saw it when you gave me the show notes. Yeah, that's right. right. Beginning of this, so. we'll sorry talk. if I'm paraphrasing a little poorly. That's all right. Uh, when we save. Th- we can talk about it more in the next show. Unless we yeah. had some more time to, you know, I kind of, I think I need to read more about um, the new game anyway. Grand yeah, Kingdom. like I literally didn't even know this existed. Uh, it kind of sounds like Grand Kingdom's like a spiritual successor, to some extent. Yeah. At least. No, I remember. Like, I remember when uh, Nissa first announced this. You know, I had like no idea whatsoever what it was. Yeah. Spike Chunsoft. Like, I guess it's supposed to very much be in that style. I wouldn't be surprised if, like, the Grand Knight's history section of Vanillaware just splintered off to make this. Makes sense. Yeah, the game was directed by Tomohiko Deguchi, who was earlier responsible for Grand Knight's history. I, I guess they'd have time for something like this, since the only other project I know they're working on right, is the, uh, is it technically a remake, or is it just like a update, of what? sophisticated update of um, 
uh, that PS2 game. Odin Sphere? The Odin Sphere, yeah. Odin Sphere Left Riser? Yeah. But it seems to be developed by a new company called Monochrome. Oh, Grand, Grand Kingdom's developed by a new company? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. It's the, it's the same director, but different company, apparently. Gotcha, gotcha. So then yeah, it yeah. probably is basically his spiritual successor of Granite Historia. Yeah, like the, even the even, history and even the frickin' Granny. box art looks the same. Yeah. <laughs> like why, do keep saying, got, why do I keep saying Historia? Just keep thinking of Radiant Historia. Yeah. Just keep thinking of Radiant Historia. Well, that's a good thing to think about. <laughs> no, that's a good game. Raptor went on to co-direct a Tokyo Mirage session uh, no, Tokyo Mirage Stage, uh, Sharp Effie. I'm sorry, I mean, you believe, I, I believe you mean Pound, pound fine Fire Emblem. I wanted to say the name right once, just so that we could then, like, <laughs> never think about it again. The only reason I can remember it is that it's SMT backwards. Oh, yeah. I never, never thought of that. <laughs> yeah, get it? Because because Shin Megami Tensei, TMS, <laughs> SMT. Oh. All right, I guess we should yeah. start wrapping this thing up. Yeah, we we both need to do more uh, research into Grand Kingdom so that we can you know not be just total dunces like we usually are. So. Yeah. All right. So, moral of this episode. Um, be excellent to each other and party on dudes yes that some local changes localization changes are dumb but not worth skipping game over uh, strategy RPGs good I missed um, Chemco um, one thumb up one thumb down I guess it's a, it's a it's strange world to live in with Play Phalanx. Like Kemco was apparently like Wheels's secret video game dad. I guess. Like freaking Phalanx with the cover art. Phalanx uh. and Lagoon and all of your favorite childhood spy versus spies. I can't that blows my mind. Freaking spy versus spy. I remember that NES game. Yeah. Chemco's, uh, there was something. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that about wraps it up. Uh, you can send us in questions on the forums, on uh, email, uh, wheels at rpgamer.com. Um, Twitter, I'm at AskWheels. Dave is at FanboyMaster. Yep. Right? Not the... It's not at no, the... Not the okay, okay. No. That's what Please. I thought. And we have this discussion every week. It's great. It's true. Until you know the episode's winding down. <laughs> um, so yeah, send us in some questions, topics, whatever you'd like us to blab on about. Um, We've certainly found ways to do it in the past. We have. Regardless of how obviously <laughs> qualified we are to. Uh, so yeah, go play some strategy RPGs. Good times. Yeah. yeah. Go play a robot war in my honor i'll go back to playing super robot war 64 which is still surprisingly good it's got fun it's fun and ambitious and it also has a lot of nice character portraits i like good character portraits and also it's got g gundam in it i love g gundam nice 
the sound of mine goes with an awesome power. Oh, I will never understand the Gundams. Go watch Gundam 0080 War in the Pocket. What are Gundam? Go watch Gundam 0080 War in the Pocket. Okay. I already recommended that. You that did? To you. I know you now. You did? Yeah. I think I made a note to myself somewhere, and but I don't remember where. So that probably I, lost the note. Probably a bad place to make a note. You probably lost them. It's it's yeah. good. It's probably the most sophisticated war story that Gundam ever told. Sweet. Ironically, by being less about war. <laughs> That's confusing. It's about civilians' reaction to the war. Um, interesting. I'm I'm still not sure why it got the subtitle "War in the Pocket," but I mean, there's not really much to change. <laughs> I, maybe that had more of a contextual understanding in Japanese. All right. Well, I think we both have copies of uh, Tactics A2 to dust off. Yeah, yeah. Well, I inherited mine from my brother when he got rid of his DS. Oh, nice. So I will dust that off and, and then proceed to ideally stare in stare a gog at his file. <laughs> <laughs> Because he freaking loves Tactics Advance and Tactics A2. Yeah, the original was really good. Underrated. I'm looking forward to when someone sends us the question, was Mark the hero or the villain? That will be an interesting discussion. <laughs> and That will be... That will also mm. generate flame wars, regardless of what happens. <laughs> 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 oh, man. Why'd you have to ask at the end of the show? Now I'm, now I'm just going to be thinking about it. <sighs> Fuck. I don't know, man. Well, you can think about it while you t- delve into the grimoire of the rift. Yes. All right. That's all, folks. Peace out. Peace out.